How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and to uh, worship the Lord through the study of the word. And so after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for the privilege and the freedom that we have to come together to study your word, for the fact that we have your word in a in good translations, that we can study the Bible, that we can, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, come to understand the truth that is there, and that God the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, also fills us with your word and brings it back to our memory so that we may apply it. Father, we pray that as a body of believers, we might be a faithful testimony to the world around us, to the importance and the centrality and the sufficiency of your word. And that as we study, continue our study in Romans, especially this passage we're beginning that deals with the institution of human government, that this might be an opportunity for us to challenge our own thinking with regard to our own relationship to our government. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and think through clearly and logically and biblically the things that we're studying. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Passage this evening takes us into a little bit of a shift, starting in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, for some some commentators, usually of a liberal persuasion, and by liberal I mean they don't take the word of God to be inerrant or infallible, they question whether this was originally written by the Apostle Paul because it doesn't seem to fit the context. However, that has been demonstrated to be uh, false by a number of other scholarly studies. One issue here, though, is why does Paul suddenly shift his thinking uh, to government and submission to governing authorities? I think it grows out of what he has just said at the end of chapter 12, where he's been dealing with specific issues uh, related to uh, Christians and their how they uh, relate to other Christians. And the last part of chapter 12 deals with seeking vengeance or justice to those who have treated them in an unjust or disrespectful manner. And so I think the segue there is to deal with the proper role of government, and that is covered in just the first seven uh, verses of chapter 13 before he returns to the theme of loving one another when we get to verse 8. So the focus tonight, and this will take us several weeks to go through this uh, section, having to do with submission to governing authority. So let me just read through and point out a few things on the first seven verses. This is a nice uh, interrelated section here. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Resist the ordinance of God, 
and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Notice that picks up that theme of vengeance from the last three verses of chapter 12. Verse 5, Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of you, because of this, you also pay taxes. I thought that was a timely verse to focus on since uh, April 15th is next Tuesday. Let me read that again in case you missed it. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, just let's make a couple of observations as we go through this particular passage. This passage has become somewhat debated, especially among certain branches of conservative politics in recent in recent years, because a lot of conservatives and uh, the conservative wing of the Libertarian Party have a problem with the fact that this government, the administration now in place, seems to be off the rails in terms of its constitutional uh, mandates. They are they are violating the the U.S. Constitution. This has led to some very interesting and wrong exegesis of this particular passage. But we have to work through this very carefully to understand what the scriptures are teaching and what they are not teaching. And unfortunately, there are, uh, in some circles, too many Christians who are so bent on justifying their own political theory that they read their political theory into the scripture instead of actually doing the kind of work they need to to study the text and let the text tell them what their political theory should be. I have one or two acquaintances that just absolutely drive me nuts because they are they 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 they're typically spiritually blind Christians. They're so well read on political history and political theory that they do not know how to read the Bible and derive from the text what the principles of governance should be. All they want to do is use the Bible to 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 devalidate their political theory, and they read their political views into the scriptures. And what I find to be consistent with people of this this kind is they have a real hard time submitting to the authority of a pastor who develops an exegetical theology from the scripture. And I have watched some of these individuals over the years that I have known them and watched them church hop. Because as soon as a pastor starts teaching something that challenges their basic presupposition in these areas, well, they decide he really doesn't know what he's talking about, and they go to the next, uh, they go to the next church, and this becomes a pattern for them. And what it shows is that not only do they have a problem with the authority of a pastor, it shows that they basically have a problem with authority in general. 
because their problem is with the authority of the government, whether they when they disagree with it. The problem is with with their a pastor when they disagree with him. And this brings us to the real problem in this whole issue, and that is when the scriptures teach us and talk to us about submitting to an authority, whether it's as individual believers submitting to Christ, or whether it's wives submitting to your husbands, whether it's members of the church submitting to the leaders in the church, when it comes to submission, it's easy. Isn't it easy for us to submit to someone when we agree with them? And what they're asking us to do is what we want to do, and it doesn't really challenge us in terms of our own agenda. But where submission becomes real submission is when the person or the institution in authority is asking us to do something that we disagree with. And if the person or the the person, the individual, the institution that is in authority over us is asking us to do something we don't think is right, now, I'm making a difference here between not our opinion of what is right versus what the Scripture says to be right. We all understand that when any authority asks us to do something that violates the direct command of Scripture, that as uh, Peter and John, Peter, Peter says in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 5, we obey God rather than men. But we have too many people who think that what they, their opinion is what's scriptural, and therefore... The person in authority can't ask them or expect them to do something because in their opinion that violates their Christian ethic. It probably doesn't. It just violates their opinion. And it comes down to humility. I think this is one of the most difficult areas of all Scripture. Last week and last couple of weeks when we were talking about impersonal love, that's a really hard topic for most of us is to treat other believers in genuine impersonal love or just to treat other people with whom we disagree or whom we dislike with genuine impersonal love. But I think another area that really challenges every one of us when it comes right down to it is when someone in authority over us demands that we do something that we really disagree with and we really don't want to do. And I'm not talking about an absolute disagreement over eternal truth. When somebody wants us to do something that we don't want to do, a, an employer, a the government, and that's what real submission is when we, when we humble ourselves and submit to that authority. So that's the real issue underlying this, and I find that this happens in politics. I know most people in this room, and I know where most what most of us think politically, and most of us are pretty much in agreement on most things. And we understand that there are many things that have been happening in, under this administration, but they've been happening for the last 30 or 40 years under various other administrations that have eroded the authority of the Constitution as we understand it. And this creates a great problem for us. And this isn't going to change. So the question we have to understand is how, how does this apply to us in terms of our own, in terms of our own thinking? So as we look at this passage, I just want to point out some structural things in the whole paragraph that helps us see how it hangs together. First of all, there's a command that every person, it's a Hebraism, let every soul, but it means let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And there's a, then there's an explanation. I missed this first four because four, it doesn't begin the, uh, begin the, the verse. 
It's an explanation. Whenever you see a for, it usually introduces a reason or cause for what was just said. And so the reason he makes this command is that there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, I read someone at one time who said, well, look, the ultimate authority of government in the United States is the Constitution. And so he read this as if it were, were, were written this way, let every soul be subject to the Constitution, for there is no Constitution except from God, and the Constitution that exists are appointed by God. And that is just such an aberration of the text, because the word authority is in plural in places. It not only relates to the, the ultimate authority in any, in any um, national entity, but to the whole chain of command from the highest authority all the way down to the lowest, from federal government all the way down to local precinct government. It's all, it's every authority is involved in this, not just the ultimate authority. That was an example of somebody reading their, 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 their political philosophy into the text to try to make the text validate their view rather than uh, let their view be shaped by Scripture. Verse 2 reads, a conclusion starts with therefore. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. So there's a positive command, and then there's a conclusion from that, that an inference that if, you're res- if the authority is established from God and you're resisting that authority, then you're resisting God himself and God's, uh, God's uh, or- ordinance or command. Then there's another explanation. Now, why would this be true? Well, verse 3, Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good works. Now, I can see some of you saying, Well, wait a minute. We've got a lot of court cases going on right now because there are different people, different uh, levels of government. There's individuals in the military. There's individuals in other uh, institutions in our country that are... Uh, specifically and pointedly going after Christians. And there's a case that's going on right now that involved a, uh, a, a cadet at the United States Air Force Academy who had written a Bible verse on the dry erase board in his room, and he was ordered to take it down. And they came in and forcibly erased it. And immediately the lawyers from Liberty Institute went out there to take take his case for him. Uh, so what do you mean the uh, uh, rulers are not a terror to good works when that kind of a thing is going on? Well, this is the kind of thing that we have to work through because this is written as a universal principle. It was also written at a time when Nero, who was evil and wicked, was Caesar in, in Rome. So it's not written under an ideal form of government. Uh, goes on in verse 4, another explanation for he, that is the authority, is God's minister to you for good. Then verse 5 draws another conclusion. Therefore, you must be subjects. So he takes us right back to the original command. And so the structure is he gives the command. He gives the implications of the command in verse 2. He explains what's really going on ultimately in terms of universal principles in verses 3 and 4. Then he gives a conclusion that takes us back to the original uh, command. Then in verses 6 and 7, he applies this to the payment of taxes. Where did that come from? 
Well, I've got a uh, suggestion for this. So uh, this gives us an overview of, of, the, of, of the passage. Now, the issue that's raised here is one that is becoming more and more of a significant issue in American politics. We're a little myopic, though. If you go to other areas of the world where they have much more tyrannical and corrupt governments, then what we're getting our panties in a knot over is not quite as severe as what you have in other places. Take Ukraine, for example. I've had spent some time going over there over the last 10 or 11 years and have seen how corrupt that government is. And, of course, all of this came boiling to a head uh, about 10 years ago, 2004, 2005, with what they called the Orange Revolution, which was a precursor to what just happened. In the Orange Revolution, there was one man running for president by the name of uh, Yushchenko, and his opponent was Yanukovych, who's the man who just was thrown out of power. Yanukovych rigged that election in 2004. He had also probably been responsible for poisoning Yushchenko. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but he was slipped something, and, and they were showed a lot of pictures of him side by side, and his face was all scarred from, from the effects of this poison. And the people uh, took to the streets because they knew this was a corrupt election. And so the election was thrown out. They called for a new election, and Yushchenko uh, won that election. But Yushchenko's saddled with a totally corrupt uh, bureaucracy, uh, one that is influenced by these obscenely wealthy oligarchs who are using their money to influence what's going on. He really couldn't change anything. And so the people, out of frustration, if Yushchenko can't change anything, that the next election, which I think was in 2008 or nine. They they voted Yushchenko out, or they didn't vote for uh, Yulia Tymoshenko uh, to replace to replace him. They voted for Yanukovych. Uh, you know, if you're going with one side and he can't solve your problems, let's go to the other side. Well, Yanukovych was worse. You're basically choosing between one form of evil and another form of evil. Neither side is really good. There's not a culture in Ukraine that understands. Uh, what we would think of as the divine institutions. That, that it's a totally corrupt culture that goes back through, through a century of corruption under the Soviet bloc, Soviet empire, and before that you had all of the horrors of the corruption under the SARS. So there's never been a solid biblical foundation for thinking through the institutions uh, of, of government. And so they get an, uh, uh, Yanukovych became, uh, President and corruption just went on steroids, and he spent billions and billions of dollars of the taxpayers' money on his own personal, you know, real estate purchases, and he built a mansion that's worth several billion dollars. It's just unbelievable, and many other things. Clearly, uh, outside of the law. Finally, the the economy gets so bad that the people took to the streets again last November when he uh, broke. Uh, the the treaty or the treaty with uh, the EU, but he was being blackmailed by Russia. This was part of it because Russians, uh, Putin was saying, if you don't break your relations with the EU and join with us, I'm going to triple the cost of natural gas, and all their natural gas comes from Russia. So he was being blackmailed. It's just a, an absolutely uh, uh, 
obscene web of corruption and blackmail and personal power politics, as bad as it, it can get. And so what, what, do you, what is the average, what should a Christian do when you're looking down at, at uh, almost 100,000 people down in the Maidan Square and they're setting up this, this demonstration against the government? Where should you be? And that was a tough question. And when I was over there in January, this was a topic of, uh, that Jim was teaching from the pulpit at the church, and it was a topic that I touched on in what I was teaching. And there were many Christians in the church who recognized that it wasn't their responsibility to overthrow the government. But it was their responsibility to evangelize and to pray, and they were involved with various Christian groups that were camped out down in the Maidan. They were passing out tracts and doing many, many other things like that. But it really hit me when I was there that I hear a lot of Christians in America, conservatives, thinking theoretically about what if... What if the government becomes more and more tyrannical? What's the breaking point? And I was watching a scenario in real time when I was in Ukraine where that's exactly where they had arrived. And let me tell you, we're about a 100 miles in the air above the depths that they had gone to. I mean, we, we think we have it bad. Let me tell you, we only think we have it bad. You may disagree with me. You may think, oh, you know, it's terrible. But it's really bad in Ukraine. I mean, it is so much worse when you have people who, on the average, can only make about four or five, six hundred dollars a month, and they're living in government-subsidized housing, and the government's in such debt that I read a report this morning that they're going to have to default on 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 all of their all of their loans, and that's just going to plunge them into an even worse case scenario. So, but that's where if we keep doing what we're doing, we're headed in the same direction. We're just not as nearly as far down the road as I think some people, some people think they are. But we have to think through our role as citizens. And this is another factor that's important for us to think through is the government that we have and the constitution that we have is a totally different scenario than the one in Ukraine. It's a totally different scenario than the government of the Roman Empire. So what we are legally uh, permitted to do, what our legal rights are in the United States, enables us to do things that other countries, citizens in other nations, can't do because it's prohibited by their law. And so a lot of these applications, I think, are relative to what is legal, what is constitutional, in these different, uh, different situations and different, different governments. So first of all, what we have to do is understand what Paul is saying to the Roman believers who are a mix of, of, um, Messianic Jews, Jews that have accepted Jesus as Messiah and Gentiles. And so we have to work, work our way through this particular, uh, question, which is, uh, are the whole question of obedience to government authority. Some of the questions that we need to address are, does the believer have the right to disobey government authority at any point? And how do we define that point? If we are able to disobey government, what are the parameters, what are the guidelines for de- determining when it is right for the individual believer to disobey a legitimate governing authority? 
This applies not only to civil authority, but it applies across the board to any authority, whether it's the authority of a coach over a, an athletic team, the authority of a non-commissioned officer or commissioned officer in the military, the authority of a teacher or a professor in the classroom, the authority of a husband over the family, the authority of parents over the children. Because the fundamental principle here is the the governing authority and the role of submission uh, to that authority. Now, this is a problem that is not just limited to us, but was one that was very much a problem uh, at that time. Now, the, as I said just a minute ago, the Roman church was comprised of both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Now, Jewish believers had a particular problem with a Gentile govern, governor. Deuteronomy 17.15, God told them, You shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you. So there was a large segment of Jews who refused to give any any submission to a Gentile government. They thought that was wrong uh, based on based on that particular passage. Uh, sometimes it's argued that the Jews in Rome were uh, particularly disobedient. There were there were riots about eight or nine years earlier due to uh, conflicts among the, in the Jewish community over the identity of one uh, Suetonius called Crestus. He spelled it with an E instead of an I. But many people believe that this was a a, a um, fraternal battle and fight among the Jews that became uh, violent over over the issue of Jesus Christ. And Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome, according to Acts 18.2. That took place for about four years before they began to come back. We also have um, the example of the zealots in uh, Judea who would recognize no king but God, and they would not pay taxes. They did not think it was right for any Jew to pay a tax to a Gentile government. And the people who thought like that, Jews who thought like that, were also in Rome. So this was a part of the background. I believe that's one of the reasons why Paul addresses the issue of taxation in verses 6 and 7. So, But this isn't the only passage that addresses this. There are a number of passages which address the, the issue, the mandate of the Christian submission to government. In Mark 12:17, Jesus famously was, they tried to corner him, the, the religious leaders tried to corner him, and they uh, asked him about the tax to Caesar, and he said, well, whose image is on the coin? And they said, well, of course, they were in a trap. They said, Caesar, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And Jesus validated the taxes. He doesn't question whether it's just or unjust, whether it's an uh, an overburdened system. He doesn't address the percentages. He just says, you're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He validates the authority of the Roman Empire, uh, Empire's laws regarding the taxation. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, we're, we're told to pray for our leaders, for the political leaders, so that we might have peace that we might go about evangelism and the training of believers without government interference. In Titus 3.1, uh, 
uh, we're told to be subject to rulers and authorities, the same verb that's used here in Romans 13, 1. In 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, using again the same verb, he says we're to submit to every ordinance of man. And, and, uh, and then there's other passages that give examples in relation to how believers are to handle the situation when they are under the authority of a corrupt pagan government. And so we're going to go into some of the examples, especially, uh, especially in Daniel. Let's begin by just breaking down the first two verses. It's one the, one sentence in the Greek, as opposed to uh, three sentences that you'll see in a, in your King James or New King James Bible. Uh, verses one and two represent one one sentence in the original Greek. So Paul begins with a command addressed to every soul, which means every person. It's a typical Jewish form of expression. Let every soul or every person be subject or be submissive to the governing authorities. So now on the two words that I have up on the screen, the word on the right, hupotasso, is the Greek word that is translated be subject. It's a present middle imperative. Now one of the uses of the, of the middle voice is that it adds, uh, emphasis. It adds, uh, sort of a reflexive act, uh, Idea is a main idea in a middle voice, but in some places it really has an active sense. It's just stating it for uh, using a middle voice for emphasis. The key thing is that this is a present imperative, and that indicates this is to be the normal standard operating procedure in every believer's life. You can either state it as a present imperative or an aorist imperative. Aorist imperative would say make this a priority. Uh, present imperative emphasizes make, make it a standard operating procedure in your life. And the verb hupotasso means to subject yourselves to an authority, to submit to authority. The word for govern, uh, the adjective governing here is actually a present participle used as an adjective, and it means something that excels or something that is higher than something or superior uh, to something else. So Paul is saying let every person Sub, uh, submit themselves or subject themselves or be subject to the governing authorities. I like using it as a more active sense, subject yourselves. It picks up that middle voice nuance. Let every person subject themselves to governing authorities. It's up to your volition to be submissive to the government, to submit to government authorities. And the word for authority here is the word uh, bottom right, exousia. I didn't get the underlining change there. Exousia, which means authority or power. It sometimes refers to tribunate, but it refers ultimately to a, an authority that is God-given. So it would be subject to governing authorities, those who rule over the people. Now this word, um, then we have, I know what happened, something got transferred or didn't transfer back when you sent it back, lost the fonts. Uh, tasso, uh, which is the idea that um, uh, the word exousia here related to uh, authority here, authority here, and authority here all relates to the Greek word exousia, and the um, and that they exist and are appointed by God. And this is the Greek word tasso, 
And tasso is the last part of the verb hupatasso. Hupa is the preposition. So we see that there is a relationship there uh, in terms of uh, something that is appointed and we are to be subordinate or submit to that uh, which is appointed. So Paul explains the reason he makes the command is that there is no authority. I mean, he's making a pretty strong point here. He's saying there's no authority that is uh, except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, as we read this, a lot of questions come into our our minds. What Paul is basically teaching is that God controls history and that nobody secures a position of rulership, nobody rises to a position of authority in government, whether it's lower or higher, apart from God. God, It may be God's permissive will, but no one gets there apart from God's governance. And that ordered government or the institution of government is not something that was developed just by mankind, but it is a divine institution established by God. Therefore, human government in and of itself is good. Now, some of my acquaintances that tend to be of a more libertarian persuasion have really surprised me because they ought to know better, they've been taught better, but I've actually heard them say things like, government government is bad, government is evil. Well, you just call God a liar. Because government in and of itself exists even in the Trinity. There is a governing relationship of authority. God established and instituted human government in order to restrain and restrict sin and evil. So government in and of itself is not evil. But there can be evil people who govern, who have positions of authority, and can make government abusive. But government can also be quite good, but in and of itself it is a it is a righteous institution having been established by God. So as a result of that, what Paul is saying is, therefore, the servants of God, those who are believers, should submit to its laws. He doesn't regard rulers as some sort of autonomous group that just takes power apart from the sovereign governance of God. Now, that's a strong position, and there are a number of people, as I've said, who want to challenge that. Uh, because they see this as some sort of blank check for any tyrant to come along and say that no one has a right to, to check the authority of, of any tyrant. But in answer to that, we have to remember several things. First of all, Paul is writing in terms of general principles. He is not writing uh, to deal with every particular situation that a person might find themselves in. Uh, he doesn't address or resolve the problem of when is it, is it right to, or is it ever right, to rebel against unjust tyranny. And to what degree do you allow tyranny to be unjust before you do something? He doesn't address the issue of what to do when there are rival claimants to the crown or when there are conflicts between civil and religious authorities. He doesn't distinguish between legitimate and usurped authority, nor does he go into the question of when a successful rebel may be held to have become the legitimate ruler. 
Uh, Paul doesn't talk about the situation and when the about when the state demands the, the citizen do something against the law of God. These are things we have to work out by comparing Scripture with Scripture and evaluating different examples in the Scripture. The one thing, though, that is clear is all of the New Testament writers are clear that we must obey God rather than man. God's word is has more authority than any human government. But we get into the sticky wicket of, well, what does the Scripture actually mean? You see, it's that bothersome thing of hermeneutics again that I talk about so much. Well, we have the same problem on the political side of the fence. What does the Constitution actually mean? Uh, You may not agree with a ruling from the Supreme Court, but according to the law of the land, the Supreme Court's ruling on how something is to be interpreted is the last and final say. You may even disagree that that's true, but that's the way things are. That's what is accepted within the legal community today, and whether we like it or not, that's where the structure is, and that's what the authority says. That's why submission is difficult, because somebody's asking you to do something you don't like, you think they're wrong, and you disagree with them. If submission were easy, it wouldn't be a problem. But that's where the real conflict lies. So we have to spend a lot of time talking about this. Now, the next verse, which continues the thought of the first, Paul works out the implications of it. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authority, that's the authority that is established by God in verse 1, and all authorities that exist are appointed by God. So whoever resists that authority resists the ordinance of God. The word translated resist in the first phrase is the Greek word antitasso. Notice the main verb, the root verb, is the, is the same cognate from hupatasso to tasso for a point and now antitasso to resist or to oppose. So anyone who opposes the authority. Now what does it mean to oppose the authority? Does that mean to go uh, marching against the government and throwing Molotov cocktails at government forces? Or does that mean you can't even speak out against them in the public square? We See, we have to define what these concepts mean. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And the word translated resist the second time is the Greek word antistemi, different verb. See, English here, they don't, they didn't vary the verb, which they should have in the, in the English, so you understand that a different word is used in the Greek. And this also means, it's a synonym, meaning to oppose or to stand against. Well, we need a new light bulb. <laughs> that woke everybody up, didn't it? Um, okay. Eyes to your right for the other screen, the one that still works. Therefore, whoever resists the ordinance of God, and the term for ordinance is the Greek word diatage, meaning a decree or ordinance or command. This is how God has established things. Whoever resists the institutions of God, that is the divine institution of government, and those who resist will bring judgment or condemnation upon themselves, divine discipline upon themselves. 
Now, as we see going through these first two verses, the fundamental issue here that we have to wrestle with is the issue of submission. Because whether it's the government or whether it's in the family or whether it's in the, uh, your place of employment, let me tell you, if you have a problem with the authority in one area, you, it's going to show up in other areas of life. People who have problems submitting to authority don't just have problems submitting to authority in one area. They have problems in other areas. And there are many people who lack the humility to submit to authority because they always know what's right. Now, that's an extreme view. There are a lot of people in this the discussion about in contemporary in the contemporary political arena who are trying to figure out where does submission stop and where does uh, holding people accountable begin. And that's a legitimate question. But some people just are basically have problems with authority. So let's start with understanding what the Scripture teaches about submission. First of all, God is the ultimate authority over his creation. Therefore, we are all, as God's creatures, required to submit to God's authority. This is seen in passages like Hebrews 12.9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. That's learning authority orientation in the home. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? So it's drawing a, a correlation between the submission to a human father and submission to God the Father. James 4.7 states it very very uh, briefly, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He goes on to a series of commands. The next verse says that we are to humble ourselves under the hand of God and he will, he will uh, sustain us. So we are to submit to God. Now, as, as the ultimate authority in the universe, God the Father will bring all things in subjection to himself. There's a issue of rebellion. This ties us back to the angelic conflict, that Satan has rebelled against God, and so the ultimate and fundamental sin in the universe is rebellion against authority. Now, that's what's important for us to pay attention to. That's why authority is such an important issue, because the sin of rebellion is the sin of Satan. And so... That's why all through the scriptures, an issue is made out of obedience to authority. It's not ultimately what we think about the authority. It's whether we are willing to do, to, to obey that authority. And if you're not, if you've got a problem of authority orientation, uh, in the home and the workplace, chances are you've got a problem of authority orientation to God. And it works both ways. So God ultimately will bring all things into submission to himself. This is working through history. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Now, when all things are made subject to Him, that's God the Father. Then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him. Okay, the first Him is God the Father. The second Him is God the Son. The Son Himself will also be subject to Him. See, even Jesus Christ, who is perfect is in a position of submission to the authority of God the Father. The Son is submitted to the Father. So this issue of submission, whatever sphere you're in, is is related to the attitude of the individual and not always to the, the authority 
or the righteousness or the authority over them. Jesus has to be subordinate to the Father. Okay, the Son himself will also be subject to him, that's God the Father, who put all things under him. That would also be God the Father, I believe. Because in the first verse, the first phrase, it says, when all things are made subject to him. So he, the Father makes all things subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him as well. Now, another verse is in verse 27, for he that is the Father has put all things under the Son's feet. So this continues this. This is also, I'm not going to go to all the passages on this, but this is also indicated in Hebrews that the Father places, not only brings all of creation in submission to his authority, but then he places that under the authority of the Son. So he, that is the Father, has put all things under his feet, that is the Son's feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That is, the Father is not placed under the authority of the Son. He's the exception. Now, all those words that I've underlined here, has put, put under, and put under, that's all hupatasso in the Greek. It's all the same verb we're talking about in Romans 13.1, being sub- sub- subject to and submissive to authority. Uh, verse 28 says, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So again, we see that God the Son is subordinate to the authority of God the Father. And this is the third point, is that Christ himself submits himself to the authority of the Father. So being submissive to an authority over you is not making yourself into a doormat. It's not somehow reducing your personhood. It's not somehow giving up something. Because if anything that you follow along those lines, which has been the... um, uh, sort, sort of the, the, the mantra of the feminist movement and every other revolutionary movement in the 20th century, it negates the, it acts as if submission to authority is somehow makes the person who's submissive less equal to the authority. But Jesus is never less equal to the Father. He is equal in every aspect to the Father. He has equal attributes to, in every attribute of deity. When he submits to the Father, it doesn't make him less of a person. It doesn't make him less significant. That's the line of the whole uh, women's equal rights movement, is to submit to a husband makes you less of a person. And that's just a, scro- a crock of biblical scubala, horse manure in the Greek. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 27, it, the Father put all things under him, are, 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 all things are put under him. The Father puts all things under him, verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, the Father, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay. Verse 4. I mean, point 4. All things will be sub- subjected to Christ or brought into obedience to his authority. This is seen in passages like Philippians 3.21, that he is able to subdue all things to himself, Hebrews 2.8, for in that he put, put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So the Father puts everything under the authority of Christ. 1 Peter 3.22, he's gone, talking about the ascension, Christ has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having, having been made subject to him. So everything is brought under the authority of the Son eventually. 
Now, that's with, in terms of subordination to the authority of God. Under point five, submission in relation to being a believer. Believers are to submit to the authority of human governing authorities. This isn't just in Romans 13. We see this all through the epistles from numerous writers. Titus 3.1, Paul writing to Titus says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey and to be ready for every good work. Same verbiage, same verb there, hupotasso, to be subject to rulers and authorities. Notice both words are in the plural. So it's not just restricted to the ultimate authority. It wouldn't be restricted to just the American Constitution. We all know that that the ultimate body of law and authority in the U.S. is the Constitution. And the constant, and everyone from the president down to the lowest citizen is accountable to the U.S. Constitution. But the Constitution delegates and defines the role, the, the role and authority of, of each member of government and limits their authority. But we are to submit to rulers and authorities. There are multiple. There are many different rulers and many different, not just the ultimate authority, but everyone that is established by the Constitution. We are under those, are to be subject to those rulers and authorities from local government all the way up to federal government. First Peter 2.13, Peter says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance. That's every law. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme, and then it goes on, now, what we have to remember there is there are exceptions. This is what happens when Peter and John are told by the Sanhedrin that they are no longer to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they say, we can't do that because we have to obey God rather than men. So there are exceptions. So even though the, the 1 Peter 2.13 passage looks like we ought to obey every law, no, we, we don't. There are exceptions, and we're going to see how to handle that as we go through this study. Under point six, the church is supposed to submit to the authority of Christ. Our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, your ultimate authority isn't the U.S. Constitution, as near and dear as that is to us. Our authority is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to, as an ambassador for Christ, to serve with a mission. That doesn't negate our individual citizenship. We have responsibilities as citizens that we have to perform. We have to be involved with government at every level to whatever degree we can. There's nothing wrong with political activism. Daniel and his friends were were politically active to the degree that they could. We'll see that when we get to Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. They didn't just sit on their hands and pray. See, that's what a lot of Christians think. Oh, all we need to do is pray about it. Well, you don't just sit and pray that your, your, your car will get repaired. You don't just sit and pray that the grass will get cut. We pray and then we have to act. We have to do what we're expected to do. We don't just, just pray and fold our hands and expect something to happen. Daniel and his three friends, when they were told that they had to eat a diet that violated the law, they didn't say, okay, we're going to hold the sit in and we're not going to do anything. That's not the option they took. They didn't say, okay, we're going to pray about it and just let God handle it. No, they didn't take that action. 
under because they were slaves, and see, U.S. citizens are not slaves, so it's a different situation, but there are principles we can apply. Because their options were very limited because they were slaves, they had to think creatively about how to handle the situation. And so they handled it by going to the authority and presenting them with a a, a, a proposal to, that would allow them to violate the diet that the Babylonian king wanted them to be on. So they challenged the law, and they were active. And by analogy, it would be the same as being politically active. They just didn't sit on their folded hands. They got involved within the system trying to change the system. Our system's different. It allows a lot more action than they were allowed. So, but the authority that governs all of that is going to be the authority of God as we're sub, sub, as church age believers subject to Christ. We're also to be subject to one another. Ephesians 5.21, we're to submit to one another in the fear of God, in respect of God. That doesn't mean that we spend all of our time being obsequious and just saying, oh, you do it your way, we'll do it your way, nobody gets anything done. But we, we don't try to fight to get our own way all the time. It's not about us. We understand it's ultimately about glorifying God, and so we're not out just to get our own way. Uh, eighth thing that we see is that slaves are to be submissive to their masters. There's application there. It's not a one-to-one scenario, but there's application there to uh, employees and employers. I know there are some employees that feel like they're slaves, but... Each employment situation is a different culture, but slaves were to submit to their masters. It doesn't say submit to your masters when they're good. It doesn't say submit to your masters when you agree with them. It doesn't say submit to your masters when, when they're nice and when they treat you right. It says submit to your masters. Uh, Titus 2.9, exhort, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, same word, hupotasso, uh, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. You know, don't be a problem. Don't be a smart mouth. Don't always challenge, verbally challenge the authority of your, of your boss. First uh, Peter 2.18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Even those who are unjust, submit to them. Now, that has great application to understand submission when it comes to the marriage. That's tough for a lot of wives to submit to some husbands. You know, the other side of it is it's really hard for some husbands sometimes to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But it's not dependent upon the individual. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5.24 says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. If you look around us today, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being completely rebellious, 10 being completely submissive, how submissive is the church to Christ? Probably about a 4 or a 3. Guess what? That's pretty much the same number I would give to Christian wives being submissive to Christian husbands. You think there's a relationship? You can't submit to Christ. You're not going to submit to your husband. We got a real problem in marriages and authority in marriages in the church today, but it's just a manifestation of the fact that, that women can't submit to authority. And I'm not picking on women. The men can't submit to authority either. They've got their own authority sphere. 
So Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, you know, that's comparable to that harsh employer that the slave has to be submissive to. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Doesn't, that's not a promise that they will be won. It's that you're going to, you know, it's the old saying, you're going to attract more flies with sugar than you are with vinegar. And wives, if you're not submissive to your husband, you're going to have a much more difficult time ever communicating the gospel to them than if you are submissive. Titus 2.5. To be discreet, wives are to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient, that is, submitted to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then finally, in 1 Peter 5, 5, the young are to submit to the elders. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's the real bottom line issue. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you can't learn to submit to the right sphere of authority around you, then that's because you've got a problem with humility. And you think you know more than the person in authority, and you think you know more than God because you're going to say, God, that's great for everybody to obey whatever the authority is, but you didn't really mean it in my case because if you knew what a loser this person was, you wouldn't be asking me to submit to him. If you really understood how evil this Obama administration is, you wouldn't be telling me to submit to it. If you really understood how horrible the horrible things that happened under the Bush administration, you wouldn't be telling me to submit to that authority. It's not qualified. We're to be an example of authority orientation and humility to the angels and to man. We'll come back and look at this more and more in the coming weeks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this this evening. We all need to be challenged in this area of our, our mental attitude of humility and submission to the authorities that are set over us, for that is one of the most important areas of our corporate testimony and our individual testimony before both the angels and other human beings. And we pray that you would help us to see the areas in our own lives where we need to really address this issue of authority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.